0: From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts, the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Today, we welcome Randy Browning, wildlife biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to the program. He's here to talk about the longleaf pine area and the animals that call it home, like white-tailed deer, wild turkey, and the Mississippi Sandhill crane. It's also home. To the gopher tortoise, an animal of concern to conservationists. Join the conversation this morning with your phone call. The number is one mpb ring It's one 672 7464 Or you can send us an email, animals at mpbonline.org. You're listening to Creature Comforts from MPB Think Radio. Welcome back. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Our guest today is Randy Browning. He's a wildlife biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. He's here to talk about the longleaf pine area of Mississippi and animals that call it home. Among them are the white-tailed deer, wild turkey, and the Mississippi sandhill crane. It's also home to the gopher tortoise, an animal of uh, concern to conservationists. We're looking for your input this morning with a phone call give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring our phone number is one 672 7464 you can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org a reminder that uh, if you ever miss creature comforts on thursday it does repeat saturday mornings at six so good morning hope everyone's doing well this morning good, good morning morning, good morning uh dr major i think it's uh, never uh, too often to mention when the temperatures get to be like they are uh just so hot and muggy and it looks like it's going to go on uh for i guess for a little while uh some reminders on on things uh outdoors pets especially but things we keep in mind about our pets when the weather gets to be so so hot you know there are a lot of things to
2: think about and you know one of them is this humidity and i've said it often before that uh We really see more uh, heat stroke early in the summer with uh, dogs, especially. And uh, people are out playing. They're out doing stuff, even at the reservoir. Even if the dog's going in and out of the water, they can get heat stroke. But make sure your animals have plenty of water, shade. And uh, it goes without saying about the cars. Just like with a baby, the uh, cars get uh, 140, 160 degrees pretty quickly. And don't leave your your dog or other animals in the car. Uh, That's, you know, basically it. I had been in Nicaragua for a week, and uh, my Nagua temperature is not a whole lot different than ours. I got there, and, you know, it said 92 degrees, but a heat index of 105, so Mm -hmm. because of the humidity. Mm -hmm. And same thing applies here. We're really uh, quite humid today, and it's going to warm up pretty good.
0: Yeah, it looks like uh, we're we're stuck in this uh, heat pattern here for a while, and it is, it's getting quite hot. And I, I agree, especially in the daytime, the humidity is really bad. I, I'm on a couple of tennis teams and uh, played at night, so it's, uh, you know, cooled off a little bit. But uh, if you go out in the middle of the day uh, around lunch hour, it can be really, really sticky. So want to keep our furry friends in mind as the temperatures uh, climb like that. As far as people are concerned, one of the things to remember, if you aren't sweating,
2: you aren't drinking enough water, mm-hmm. you need to be able to, uh, like playing tennis or out working in the woods or whatever, uh, if you aren't sweating uh, this time of year, you need to be drinking more water, Certain.
0: Uh, was uh, the other day I was getting some ice for a drink, and uh, one of the cubes fell on the ground. So I threw it in the cat's uh, water bowl, and he had such a fun time with it. <laughs> uh, next thing I noticed, it was not in his bowl anymore. He apparently had somehow knocked it out of there and was batting it around the kitchen floor. So he oh, was having be fun with it too. Oh,
3: careful when so. you walk in the kitchen and he's playing with the ice. That's a good just, way to just fall.
2: Don't, just don't teach him to open the refrigerator <laughs> and get or the fridge get it out. But.
0: That's he good. does sometimes. Uh, he, he likes to stick his head in there when I open the refrigerator door, <laughs> see know. what's going on in there. So, uh, again, we've got some open fallins. Going to be talking today about the uh, the longleaf pine area of Mississippi with our guest Randy Browning, a wildlife biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Randy, thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you, Kevin. Um, tell us a little bit about your background. How long have you been a wildlife biologist?
4: Well, I went to work for uh, the uh, Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, Parks back in 1995 and, and worked for them for almost seven years as, as a district deer biologist in south mississippi and then i went to work for the u.s fish and wildlife service as a private lands biologist in 2001 and also have a partnership with wildlife mississippi
0: okay um is outdoors uh, nature something that you know you were always interested in uh, even as a kid
4: oh yes sir all my life in fact when i was when i was young the uh my first grade teacher had a real hard time with me cuz I was pretty much a feral child <laughs> and uh I didn't care anything about alphabet, learning the alphabet or learning my numbers but uh we had a field trip and I took the lead of the class and and uh she figured out that's the way to get my interest, and because of her, I did learn my ABCs, my numbers. <laughs> that's a good teacher. Really, a I good was
0: going to say, kudos to that, that she figured out what, uh, what gets you going. And, I, you know, I think that uh, a lot of times, uh, if we've lived here, we, we sometimes maybe take Mississippi's um, natural surroundings for granted. But I think, you know, if you would talk to people in other parts of the country, uh, they know how fortunate we are to have such great uh, natural resources and such, you know, recreational uh, ac- 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 ob- um, uh, opportunities and that sort of thing. So I think we're, we're fortunate to live in a state that uh, offers us uh, that. So uh, tell us, now, we, when we talk about the Longleaf Pine area of Mississippi, this is a, a South Mississippi, I guess. Give us an idea of where we're talking about. Okay,
4: well, first, to understand, we need to kind of understand where Longleaf range historical range was. And it was between 90 and 92 million acres historically from Virginia all the way into East Texas. Oh, wow. And then in the past... Uh, 400 years, with the settlement of the United States and explorers and whatnot, they have been degrading that ecosystem through naval stores, uh, agricultural lands, development, and then the lumber industry came in here and degraded the system back at the turn of the century and just basically clear-cut this the, the majority of the Longleaf ecosystem. And when I started in 2001, there was roughly 255,000 acres of longleaf in Mississippi with only about 3 million acres across the historical range. And um, these
0: longleaf historically is in the lower 38 counties of Mississippi. So I guess it's fortunate that um, the idea of conservation and, and the need uh, uh, to protect uh, our our land and wildlife for future generations caught on before it really was completely gone. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, so why uh, why is this area subject to to so much conservation efforts? Well, with
4: with longleaf being such a degraded ecosystem, and there's a lot of species. There's there's roughly 170 different species of amphibians and reptiles that are within the longleaf ecosystem range across uh, the south. And uh, because of so many species that are dependent on this ecosystem and because of the degradation of this habitat, a lot of these species uh, are in decline or in peril. And so there's been a big push to restore the ecosystem and manage it for a lot of these fire-dependent species.
0: And it must say a lot about that ecosystem that it is is home to so many uh, such a wide variety of of animals, Yes, sir, uh, roughly three hundred and fifty different
4: species
0: so uh, if you're listening this morning and have a question we're going to be talking to randy throughout the hour about the longleaf pine area of mississippi and some of the animals that are uh, found there or if you have a pet question for dr major our phone lines are open and the phone number is one mpb ring it's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. 672 7464 you can always send an email to animals at mpbonline.org and i guess uh, the uh, longleaf pine area is home to the desoto national forest uh, tell us a little about uh that 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 area
4: uh it is a very prime area for longleaf ecosystems uh the soto national forest whether it's through camp shelby or the the national forest they're doing a lot of management to maintain longleaf it was a hot spot historically that was what was there it's just within the mostly the rolling mesic hills uh predominant longleaf overstory and they're still maintaining that and all around the Soto National Forest, whether it's Perry County, uh, Stone County, Forest County, Lamar County, there's a a lot of preponderance longleaf there historically, and it's a lot of it's still there. And we're trying to expand that ecosystem through uh, assistance
0: to private landowners. And I guess, as you mentioned, the logging. So I imagine the the longleaf pine is is good quality lumber as well. Uh yes, sir. It's a very good quality lumber. Um, on a volume-to-volume
4: basis, it's about 6% heavier than the other species. It's a long-lived species. Uh, it will live three, four, five hundred 4 500 years old, uh, potentially. Um, it is a species that naturally, naturally regenerated stands, they'll be suppressed for a while, but once you thin that stand, they will continue to grow where some of the other species,
0: particularly slash, will stun out and not resume that growth. And we talked about the diversity of animals there. What is it about this ecosystem that is so attractive and, and, and attracts so many different kinds of animals?
4: Well, it is uh, it is right behind the the rainforest as far as diversity. There is there is some documentation of nine hundred to twelve hundred different plant species in the longleaf ecosystem. So it's a very diverse ecosystem, like I say, just below the the rainforest. Mm-hmm. Um, There's a tremendous amount of wildlife species that are indigenous to it, that utilize this. Not only are game animals that everybody uh, in South Mississippi pursue, whether it's the the wild turkey, the white-tailed deer, or the bobwhite quail, but it's it's a tremendous amount of non-game species that are dependent on these ecosystems. Uh, Many of them have been imperiled, uh, or threatened, endangered, such as the red-cockaded woodpecker, the dusky gopher frog, the gopher tortoise, uh, the black pine snake, the Louisiana black bear, uh, the Mississippi sandhill crane. So there's, there's quite a few species. There's approximately 30 different species indigenous to the longleaf ecosystem that are either threatened or endangered. And
0: considerable amount are species of concern. And I guess with the diversity in plants, obviously that would attract then the diverse type of animals that we're talking about. One one goes hand-in-hand with the other. Uh, Before we take a break, why don't we invite our buddy Timothy calling in from Louisiana this morning. Go ahead, Timothy. You're on the air.
5: Good morning. Uh, If one wanted to plant their property in Longleaf Yellow Pine, where could you get the starters for that,
4: you know? There are several... uh, Vendors, a lot of them in Georgia, Alabama. Uh, one of the great places that you can go look is get on to the Longleaf Alliance uh, webpage. Ah,
5: Longleaf Alliance. I'll Google that later. They got a website. I will bet.
4: Yes, sir, and they will have a list of vendors on their website.
5: Yes, sir. Eric Sloan, the uh, woodsman, writer, etc. You know, he wrote a book and he said in there that when they landed a Roanoke, a squirrel could leave Virginia and go all the way to Texas in longleaf yellow pine. Yeah,
4: Yes, yeah. sir. At <laughs> one time they you know.
5: could. And, you know, um, um, Thomas Jefferson gave a gift of longleaf yellow pine to a friend of his in England, and the boat that is built out of it is still in use commercially.
4: Oh,
0: Outstanding. Mm. All
5: right. And that, that's, that, that's over 200 years.
0: That's pretty that good. That talks about uh, how resilient that is. Timothy, good to hear from you. Thanks for the call. We've got some open phone lines. We're going to take a quick break, but when we get back, we'll continue our discussion. Looking for pet questions this morning, wildlife questions and observations, and specifically talking about the Longleaf Pine area of Mississippi with our guest, Randy Browning, who's wildlife biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. The number calls, 1-877-MPB-RING. You can reach us when you dial 1-877-672-7464. Back with more after this.
1: any member of MPB Think Radio. We appreciate your support of our programs. To become a sustainer, go to mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.
0: Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Uh, we're visiting today with Randy Browning, who's a wildlife biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. We're going to be talking about the longleaf pine area of South Mississippi and the uh, abundant animals that we find there. Unfortunately, many of them uh, threatened, and so we'll talk about that uh, throughout the hour. Also, looking for any pet questions that you have, you can give us a call to join the conversation. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can always send us an email, animals at mpbonline.org. Got another caller on the line. It's our friend Rich from Gulfport has called in today. Good morning, Rich. Go ahead.
5: Uh, good morning.
0: Uh, I, I heard that cats and dogs can
5: only see in black and white. And I called a couple of veterinarians and they said yes, they know i see in black and white. So I was wondering about other things like bunnies and uh squirrels and birds. Can they also see in black and white or are they see color?
2: I think you can think of uh maybe and I, I disagree with that. I think dogs and cats can see some color. I don't I don't necessarily hold to that myself, but Think of the hummingbird. You know, where does it go? It goes for yellow and red in general, yeah. uh, as far as ne- getting nectar. And uh, one of the things we find with birds, especially some of them, have very microscopic sight. Almost, they can pick up things a long ways away, like your hawk.
3: Yeah, they definitely are can so, see color because yeah. they're attracted to different colors. In fact, they can. Some speculation that birds mm-hmm. can see colors that we can't see.
2: Hmm. Probably so. They may. I think our dogs and cats can see things that we are know there. they can they, hear
3: things right? we can't hear. I think yeah. our dogs
2: and cats can uh-huh. see things that are there that mm-hmm. we can't even see. So, and your wild turkey definitely can see color. <laughs> right? Right. Well, that's right. And uh, I so it depends. And I, I scientifically, I'm not going to argue the point that dogs and cats can see color, but I think there's a difference between the two, and they can at least pick up tones very well. And like you say, the the wild turkey. If, if you
4: hunt with Hunter Orange, you're not going to be very <laughs> successful. But the white-tailed deer does not notice that. Sure. But what they do notice uh, is UV glow mm-hmm. off of, of hunters' clothing, exactly. so oh, uh, yeah. they can't see different right. tones and
0: light reflections for sure. Right. All right, Rich. Thanks for calling in this morning. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. If you'd like to join the conversation, just give us a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven MPB Ring. That's one eight seven seven. we have another caller on the line so let's stay on the phones as we say good morning to Jane who's called in from Grand Bay Alabama good morning Jane
6: good morning how are you
0: good how are you go ahead please
6: I have kittens in my backyard this is the second year that a mama cat has come in and she's had kittens and then it becomes my responsibility to try and find some incredible people who are willing to try and make friends with these kittens. And then the mama cat goes away. I'd like to know what I could do to try and discourage her from coming, and if you have some overall pointers for a situation like this.
2: Okay, very good question. And first of all, we don't know if she's probably a feral cat based on what you're saying. But uh, I would suggest highly that you work with uh, a group or whoever you can work with there that uh, can put out a live trap. Trap this cat and have her spayed. That's the way to stop the kittens. Uh, But if it's the same cat and she, have you been feeding her? Do you feed the cat? Never. Never. But you take care of the kittens and the kittens, uh, obviously you try to place them, which is good. But I would definitely try to trap this cat and uh there are different groups that will assist you in that and also in having her spade, but I strongly recommend that.
0: Okay.
6: Yeah, thank you.
0: All right, You're welcome. Jane, good to hear from you. Thanks for the call. If you'd like to join the conversation, we've got some open phone lines, one eight seven seven MPB ring. It's one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464 send an email to animals at org. visiting this morning with randy browning wildlife biologist with the u.s fish and wildlife service talking about the longleaf pine area of south mississippi oh, already what and where are wet pine savannas uh, they're going to be mostly down around your coast lower coast
4: uh, the mississippi sandhill crane refuge is basically a savannah it's a wetter area with low basal area uh, meaning that there's Fewer stems of trees on the landscape. Um, you can basically call some of your pitcher plant bogs a type of savanna as well. Mm-hmm. And they're scattered on up
0: further inland as well. And also, you know, at the beginning you mentioned and and, uh, Timothy mentioned, too, that, uh, you know, the the longleaf pine area used to stretch from Virginia uh, through Texas. uh, Been uh, lost a lot of that area. But where today we talked about, you know, the counties in in South Mississippi. What about some of our uh, contiguous states, Alabama, Louisiana? Is it still there as well? Yes, sir. There's still longleaf across the region. It's just a reduced, Mm -hmm. you know, amount of acreage. Okay. Uh, Got another phone call to get to next on the line. Mikey from Mobile has called in. Good morning, Mikey.
6: Hey, good morning. Um, Thank you, guys. This is oh, thank you so much for this show because this is right up. This is information that I need. But the information that I'm calling about is um, uh, what as the screener asked me. um, Wasps, Um, wasps stings particularly on your pets. I had unfortunately this was not down in the area that I that I frequent spend at least half my time um which is uh one of those savannas you're talking about longleaf um i'm trying to keep it that way go for tortoises and all um but uh my one of my pets in farther inland up hills mobile has areas that get to be hills pretty quickly um and uh we were out in the garden, and one of my dogs stepped on a wasp. I was looking at her when she did it. I heard the yelp. I recognized it because I've heard it before and seen the swelling before. I immediately brought her in, threw some apple cider vinegar, which I keep a small traveler bottle, you know, on the what would be other people's coffee table, I guess, and put that on the foot. And it seemed to take care of it. Within a very few hours, is that a good, a bad? Uh, wh- wh-
2: what kind of ideas and what other ideas can I get, please? Really, that uh, I would say that that was not a bad idea. Uh, there are a lot of home remedies for insect bites and stings. One of the oldest that I remember as a child from out working on fence row, uh, and somebody was chewing tobacco. They would they would <laughs> put the chewing tobacco on it, and it did help. Uh, In your case, I would suggest antihistamines. I think that would be wise. Uh, One milligram per kilogram is a good dose, and that would help with the intensity of the sting. Uh, Baking soda uh, can actually make a mixture of baking soda and put on it. Honestly, I'm not familiar with how the apple cider vinegar would work on that, but certainly you didn't harm anything by doing it. But antihistamines would be a a good
0: answer as far as what to give. Okay. All right, Mikey. Good to hear from you. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. If you'd like to join the conversation, the phone number is one eight seven seven MPB Ring. It's one eight seven seven. 672 You can email the show animals at mpbonline.org. We're visiting today with Randy Browning, who's a wildlife biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. He's helping us learn more about the longleaf pine area of South Mississippi and some of our surrounding states as well. Um, you know, Randy, I think, uh, hunting, I think, uh, when, when, we, when well regulated, uh, can be a helpful, uh, tool in, in managing um, wildlife uh, resources in in areas like the longleaf pine. Well,
4: oh, yes, sir. Uh, deer can be their own worst enemy. They, they'll eat herself literally out of house and home. And if their populations are not regulated, the diversity of the ecosystem, the understory, is going to be seriously impacted. So, population management is definitely in play. Now, we have very low quality soils in, in South Mississippi, and we cannot produce the number of whitetail deer. Down there that, that can be produced in the Delta and some of these richer habitats but uh, if n- going unchecked they can be their own worst enemy.
0: And I think too aren't some of the monies that are generated from the sale of hunting licenses go back into uh, helping uh, preserve and, and, and uh, pr- habitat
4: I guess. Uh, yes sir and they, a lot of this money goes back to the State Department of Wildlife, Fisheries and Parks that, that help manage uh, the wildlife resources that we were so blessed to have here in the state, mm-hmm.
3: and there are also a few taxes on hunting and fishing equipment that are used for habitat yes, the Dingle protection Johnson on a federal level that are really good to have.
0: That's the Dingle, Johnson and Pittman mm-hmm. Robertson Act. Mm-hmm. Yes, and of course, you know it's uh, a it's a good, it's a good uh, tourism thing too. A lot, you know, a lot of folks like to hunt, and we've got the 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 area for it, so um, it, it's it, it's it's helpful in a number of ways. Uh, we've got another caller on the line. This time we're going to talk to Arthur, who's called in from Lena this morning. Go ahead, Arthur. You're on the air.
5: Hey, how y'all doing? Doing good. Yeah, I'm having a problem with some moles in my backyard. I got a good, good, uh, I got a whole lot of earthworms back there. Yeah. And I, I've heard, I've tried some of everything to get rid of but I can't seem to do nothing to find that. Is there anything that y'all could recommend that I could do to get, get rid of them or make a move? Okay. First,
3: let's be positive that you got moles instead of voles. Voles are actually worse than moles for most people in the yard. Do you see a tunnel that, like, you can see the evidence above the ground as well? Uh, uh-huh. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And have you found a mole? Have you no, seen a oh, No, well, one? Uh,
5: my dog dug up one. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Okay. Look like they're getting
3: worse and worse. Well, the good news, I guess, is that the, the the moles don't tend to kill your plants, but they they're you know most people don't want those tunnels in their yard anyway. They're not easy to get rid of though. There they make some traps that you can put out that uh, are kind of like spike legs that you can put down. Um, most people will tell you you'll need to dig up. Um, there are some terrible poisons that some people use that I would not recommend using and Troy you got some ideas I know you've dealt with them yeah. before too. One, one
2: of the one of the problems with the poisons is that your dog could get a hold mm-hmm. of that poison and it's fairly toxic so don't let's don't put out poison. What kind of dog do you have? I got two
5: German Shepherds
2: now get you a jack russell i guarantee you they'll go after those things <laughs> and uh you may have a dug up yard but uh jack jack russell's are notorious for being able to go after the mold and that you can laugh about that but i have i have seen uh rat terriers and jack russell's that love to dig and dig up mold so your german shepherds they're gonna be kind of oh i don't know if i want to do this or not and of course they'll dig a bigger hole than the jack russell but uh Good luck to you. I'd say if, you know, and there's things on sale that, you know, supposedly vibrate and uh, make the molds go away. I'm not so sure that those work at all.
3: Yeah, be careful what you buy like right, that. Right. You, you could spend a lot of money on something that right. doesn't help. Yeah.
0: Okay. All right, Arthur. Good luck to you. Thanks for the call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We need to take a quick break. When we get back, we'll continue taking your phone calls as we talk with Randy Browning, a wildlife biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. We're talking today about the Longleaf Pine area in South Mississippi. The number to call to join our conversation is one mpb ring It's 1-877-672-7464. Send us an email, animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more of the show after this.
5: The Arts and Music is MPB Music Radio. From classical to bluegrass and everything in between, MPB Music Radio has a sound for every ear. For information on where to find MPB Music Radio, visit mpbonline.org.
0: You count on MPB News for in-depth coverage of issues that matter to you. The
6: state's ongoing opioid epidemic. A
0: bill to allow guns in churches. The child welfare crisis. And the best radio newscast in the state. Those are just a few of the stories behind 10 new Associated Press Awards and another Edward R. Murrow Award. For the award-winning coverage you've come to expect, count on us. We are MPB News.
6: We are MPB News. We are MPB News. We
0: are MPB News. We
6: are MPB News. We are MPB News.
0: Welcome back. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. We're sitting today with wildlife biologist Randy Browning as we talk about the Longleaf Pine area of South Mississippi. Um, Randy, before we go back to the phone calls, one thing that we talked about on the show before that I think is interesting um, is the idea of prescribed burning, and I think you even uh, t- mentioned uh, fire-dependent uh, Animals that live here. First of all, tell us uh, what what the idea of prescribed burning is all about.
4: Well, prescribed burning uh, has uh, has a lot of attributes, a lot of benefits. One uh, in this current society is just the reduction of fire hazardous fuels. You know, on the human aspect of it. As far as wildlife, it and in the longleaf ecosystem, it helps remove a lot of the competition. The longleaf pine is a is an outstanding species. It's a great tree, but it is a weak competitor. Of overhead competition. So fire helps maintain uh, an open status of that stand to keep the competition down, whether it's in the grass stage or, or in the sapling stage, candelabra stage as we like to call it. But prescribed fire not only reduces the competition for the tree, but it, it helps for scarification of seed, release of nutrients, and so forth for the understory that all of our wildlife species are so dependent on and what makes this ecosystem so so diverse.
0: All right. Um, I had a follow-up there, but I, I didn't. I can't think of it. So <laughs> we, while I get my mind together, let's head back to the phone lines. Kathleen's called in from Osaka this morning. Good morning, Kathleen.
7: Hi. I've got two comments today. One will help you out. The reason why the vinegar works is the acid neutralizes the sting, the bite. Okay. I know that because my dad was head of the apiary board for Louisiana for many years. And to this day, I still hand out anyone that works on my land, a plastic bottle full of high acid vinegar. Okay. And it, it really works for wasp and other things. Now I'm going to give you a quick update on BB. The bad boy <laughs> has turned out to be a real big putty cat. <laughs> he is now sleeping in the window with Mr. Man and Fanny, and he is perfectly at home. In two years, uh, anybody that adopts a cat like that, it's worth it. Uh, He's working in his own element. He's almost 19 pounds now, and uh, he's doing really, really well. And you're right. He was my cat.
2: Exactly. Well, (laughs) we appreciate that report, so that's good. I'm glad he's become a
0: real member of the family. All right. Kathleen, good to hear from you. Thanks for the call. I I know what I wanted to follow up on. When we talk about prescribed burning, how do you go about doing it? I mean, I guess um, wind conditions is important, but how do you make sure that what you're burning kind of doesn't get out of control?
4: Well, there's a lot to prescribed burning. One, uh, you've got to get a permit to do any prescribed burning. Uh, We recommend that the person is a certified prescribed burn manager that is conducting that fire. Um, you have the right to burn in Mississippi, but but the biggest thing is that the fire is not the big problem. Is When you light that match, you're on the smoke. Mm-hmm. So you've got to be cognizant of what's downwind, transport winds. There's only partic- particular parameters that you can burn under. Uh, you have to call the Forestry Commission to get this permit, and, and they'll be able to tell you that. Um, I don't recommend anybody lighting a fire that has never burnt before because there's two kinds of prescribed burn managers, those that have had problems and those that are going to. And, uh, and, uh, so uh, get with somebody before they burn uh, or hire somebody to do it or work with people that do burn to learn it and go to, there's a class at Mississippi State that you can come become a prescribed burn manager. Uh, but it's, it's very important to to maintain the forest ecosystem that we're trying to promote perpetuate uh, a lot of these species are dependent uh, from the beginning of time here basically whether it started from lightning strike fires and the native american uh, the native americans that were here they perpetuated and managed that forest for years and for us to continue managing it's a very important to to having prescribed fire uh, one one man i work with he said you know
0: longleaf pine without fire is like the rainforest without rain and there's a lot of truth to that
5: Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the uh, animals we find in the longleaf pine area but let's get through some phone calls first again we'll start with uh, alan in poplarville good morning alan hey
5: good morning how you doing
0: good what do you have for us
5: well my parents live out in the country in in county and uh They have lots of fruit and all that stuff, great vines, and they've got a uh, cattle dog. And um, this dog loves to run, loves to play, loves to chase birds and whatnot. But just like that other gentleman with the um, moles and voles, whatever, this dog likes to dig as well, which really aggravates my dad. So my dad's been tying up the dog, which isn't fair to the dog because the dog likes to run and play.
1: Any idea
2: how to solve a dog from digging? Very difficult. Uh, I have uh, witnessed this many times, and it is a major complaint. And it's kind of like, why does a dog dig? He does because he can. Whether he can see something there or smell something, I think some dig out of pleasure. Uh, They like to make a hole a lot of times to lay down in when it's hot and be cool. Uh, People have tried... Filling the holes with water uh, as they dig, uh, putting chicken wire over them, and usually it's to no avail. The dog is determined to do it. Uh, How old is your dad? Uh,
1: About 75.
2: Oh, he's a young man. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) but, But... uh, I have seen cases, though, where somebody, as their eyesight begins to fail, that if you've got enough holes in the yard, they may trip and fall. So, exactly. I, and I, that is a cause for concern. I, is this the only dog you have? He has? Uh,
5: no, we have a golden retriever as well. Well, they have a golden retriever.
2: Right. And what? how big is the area that they're in?
5: Uh, Forty acres.
2: Yeah. But he's he's just digging in certain areas then might try to determine if there is a reason why he's digging in those particular areas i don't know what to tell you really because you know short of getting another dog he's going to dig and i don't know yeah. exactly how to tell you to stop that exactly i wish i all had right. be- i wish i had better information somebody uh listening may have a good a good hint so if they do let's see if they'll call yeah i, I appreciate it thank all you right,
0: thank you all right alan hey. thanks for the call um, my thought would be if you try to fill up a hole the dog is digging in with water, you're going to have a very muddy dog. Exactly. <laughs> and, that is, and that is true to a large extent. Uh, let's move on next. We've got uh, Jeanette, who's called in from Biloxi. Good morning. Go ahead.
6: Oh, uh, good morning. Yes, on um, mole holes. Uh, it works like clockwork. If you just spread out some bird feed, uh, it can be tropical or just even sometimes the cheap corn where it's almost all corn and um, some flower seed. But you just throw some bird seed out across the yard, and it will attract a few more pretty birds, but within a couple of days, they're gone it's every time. And that works for me and uh, Biloxi and for my dad in Long Beach. No, you're saying the moles are gone? They're gone. Hmm. They don't like birds. And once you put the seed out, it drives the moles away. The birds come, sometimes you don't always see them, you know, hanging out and eating at your house, but they find that bird seed. And once the molds get, I guess, a notion of that, they're gone. I mean, in 48 hours
0: or less.
2: Wow, that's great information. We'll have to try it. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks for the call. You're welcome. And, and I think that goes along with that idea, if there's a creature that's somewhere that you don't want, if you somehow make that area somewhat unpleasant, they will go find an area that there's less hassle, I guess. And so uh, a good thought there. Thanks for that call. One other call to get to, and it's Joyce in South Haven. Good morning, Joyce.
6: Good morning. Go ahead. I was I was calling. I have an overpopulation of chipmunks this year, and they are devastating my pecans, of course. But I'm, is there anything I can do about that?
3: I've got a whole bunch this year, too. And I I love to watch them. But, um, again, uh, the right kind of dog can give them a real hard time and kind of uh, limit where they'll be. I don't know if that would help with your pecans, though. I don't have a good solution. Troy, have you ever?
2: I would say that very difficult difficult to control, especially... uh from the standpoint of they have burrows and tunnels and all that, but uh mm-hmm. a lot of times I have seen cats hunting them and uh they are pretty good at catching catching the chipmunks, so you might consider uh a cat outside cat if you don't have one. But uh
3: But I always hate to say that because of what they'll do to birds. Oh I know it I know <laughs> it. And
2: that's that's that that's the flip side of that. So uh, I really don't know of a good solution. Uh to that.
3: maybe a listener's got a solution for that one too. again i'll
2: go back to jack russell's if you got a jack russell in your <laughs> ER, he's going to he's going to patrol it and keep the squirrels up the tree and chipmunks in their holes so let's uh think of ways that we can control that
0: all right joyce uh, thanks for the call we've got some open phone lines if you'd like to join in the conversation this morning at one eight seven seven mpb ring our phone number is one 7464. We're visiting today with Randy Browning, who is a wildlife biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, talking about the wild, what the longleaf pine area in South Mississippi. Randy, let's talk a little bit about some of the creatures we'll find there. We've mentioned a little bit about uh, the gopher tortoise. If you could tell us uh, a little bit about that, what they look like, uh, what, what habitat are they looking for, those sorts of things.
4: Okie okay, okay. a, a gopher tortoise is basically a, a land turtle, and they will excavate a burrow that is anywhere from 20 to 30 feet in length and maybe 10 10 or 15 feet deep Mm -hmm. and in that cavity at the bottom of it it maintains a very constant temperature year-round because it's below the ground interesting thing about uh, the gopher tortoise is we consider it a keystone species and meaning that there's a lot of other species that are dependent on that gopher tortoise and then there's uh, about three hundred and 50 or so commensal species that were utilized as burrows, mm-hmm. And it's uh, it benefits them, but it doesn't cause any harm or any benefit really to the gopher tortoise. So it's very important uh, to have the gopher tortoise on the landscape for a whole suite of species, not just the, the ones that we like to look at and, and the pretty birds or whatever. Uh, but there's a lot of arthropods, there's crickets, there's um, mm-hmm. eastern diamondback, will use it. Potentially the the black pine snake from time to time. I think they've seen rat snakes in these burrows. Uh, there'll be mice. There'll be uh, uh, even a bobwhite quail if it gets if it gets chased or whatever. It's liable to run in a burrow for refuge for just a little while. He's not going to stay there long, but they will run in a hole. So there's a lot of species, and one particular species is the dusky gopher frog. They utilize that burrow uh, on on the upland and then they will, they will go into ephemeral ponds to do their breeding and, and reproduction, but they utilize that burrow uh, throughout most of the year, and they're dependent on that. In most cases, they will use uh, crayfish holes
0: as well, but very dependent on the gopher tortoise burrow so we might call them the the friendliest animals in the longleaf pine because they're letting everyone else use their Yes, house. sir. yes sir they <laughs> they will not hurt you when, when, when you look at them uh, we need to take one final break this hour when we get back we're going to wrap things up talk a little bit about some of the other uh, animals that we see in the longleaf pine area we're visiting today with randy browning who's wildlife biologist with the u.s fish and wildlife service you're listening to creature comforts on mpb think radio
1: Informative MPB news stories, the local shows you love, up-to-date severe weather info, and a state and worldwide reach telling the story of Mississippi. You're listening to MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.
0: Welcome back. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Talking about the Longleaf Pine area of South Mississippi today with our guest, Randy Browning, who's a wildlife biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. We've been talking a little bit about some of the animals you'll find in the Longleaf Pine region. We've talked uh, about the gopher tortoise uh, Randy, One of the other things I think uh, is the Sandhill Crane. You mentioned that that's uh, down along the Gulf Coast. Um, and uh, if folks have an opportunity uh, to be able to see these, tell us about the the Sandhill Crane National Wildlife Refuge.
4: Yes, sir. It's it's down just out of Waveland. It's uh, U.S. Fish Wildlife Service refuge for the Sandhill Crane. They're they're doing a lot of habitat management down there. The Mississippi Sandhill Crane is only in Mississippi. When I moved over here from Texas years ago, they were talking about the endangered Sandhill Crane we've got a migratory sandhill crane out there that there will be thousands of them but there's a very limited population here they lay a couple eggs each year they have very low hatch rates Um, maybe one will survive so the population is low but it's a very interesting bird living in the savannas they need that open overstory savannah type habitat they'll they're pretty ferocious feeders I mean they'll eat crayfish lizards or anything like that as well as grains and they need that open fields and pastures
0: around there. But the good thing about a refuge is, obviously, it's helping them. It's giving them the habitat that they need. But also, it gives us a chance to kind of enjoy them and, and see them in their natural surroundings. Yes, sir. And it's a very, very nice refuge down there. I recommend people go down and visit. Another one of the things uh, nature related that uh, Mississippians can be proud of and something uh, to enjoy, maybe a good summer trip for a family if you're looking for something to do here in Mississippi to head down to the Gulf Coast and check that out. All right, so how about the uh, the red cockatoo? Cockaded woodpecker. (laughs) Help me out there. I was getting in trouble with
4: that one. (laughs) Oh, that's a very interesting bird. It's a specialist. It it, it has to excavate its cavities in living trees. It's not like our other woodpecker species that are going to excavate cavities in dead trees. They require a live tree. Mm -hmm. And uh, these trees, whether it doesn't matter if it's a, a loblolly or a slash or a longleaf, but the minimum age on most of these trees are about 70 years plus, or they can excavate because they have to have red heart disease in that tree so that they can actually excavate, ex- excavate that cavity. And they will peck around the cavity itself and create resin flow, and that is to keep basically the rat snake from being able to climb up mm-hmm. and, and you know take the babies or the eggs. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> They're a social group bird that once they fledge out, uh, the female offspring typically will go off looking for a mate but but the male hatchlings will stay around and, and assist the, the the parent colony as far as feeding and taking care of the young. So they're a social, social bird. They're a very small bird, and the cockade is just basically, if you think about uh, a feather in somebody's hat, just a small feather, there's a little red cockade on it. They look very much like a back or sap, a woodpecker or a sapsucker. In, in similarity, the small bird like that. But they got a very small red cockade. You got to almost be
0: holding the bird to see that. Mm-hmm. Uh, looks like we have another caller on the line. Off to Madison we go this time. Jim has called in today. Good morning, Jim. Go ahead. Good morning.
2: My mother grew up
5: in Franklinton, Louisiana, which is uh, due west of Bogaloosa, due west of
4: Poplarville, Mississippi.
2: When I was a kid, 60 years ago, um, she
4: used to tell me that there was a small stand of virgin longleaf pine somewhere on that highway between. Poplarville and Franklinton and I was wondering if, if your guest knew anything about that uh, no sir I am not actually aware of that stand I be, wouldn't be would be surprised if there would be a few remnant uh, old growth stands uh, there was one in Flemington, Alabama for many years and unfortunately uh, the ownership changed hand and they took that beautiful forest mm-hmm. down uh, I do know of one small patch of longleaf um, that's kind of northwest of purvis and it's only about 10 acres in size and it's amazing how big those trees are but i'm not surprised that there is some some old growth longleaf in that part of the world because that was a big logging industry back in the heyday of of longleaf pine and, and moving this uh, southern right. yellow pine across the ocean so um hopefully you could google that but i'm not really familiar with where that tract is Okay, great.
0: Well, I will certainly Google it, and I've certainly enjoyed the show today. It's been really informative. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Jim, for the call. Um, So I think one of the other interesting things is is some of the the land in the Longleaf Pine area is private property, and I think it's, uh, again, it's kind of credit to some Mississippians who own this land but are willing to invest in the idea of uh, preserving the habitat, that sort of thing. So talk, if you would, about working with private landowners, and what are some maybe some of the incentives that, that you offer that, that that they can get on board?
4: Okay, well, when, when you're talking about private land in the state of Mississippi, about 75% of the ownership of the land base is in private land, so in a lot of cases we may be able to maintain some of these populations on, on public land, but in order to perpetuate and promote them and delist some of these species, we really need to have impact on the private private sector so because of that there there's a lot of of incentives uh assistance programs i I have a program that i can assist in some cases to restore longleaf the natural resource conservation service has uh a lot of funding available for longleaf uh call your your county office talk to them if you're interested in longleaf The uh, Mississippi Extension Service has had some grants. A lot of us work off of grants. Uh, Some of it is, is like I have a partner for Fish and Wildlife. I'm a partner's biologist, and we have some funding available there. But there's a whole suite of grants out there that that we try to get access to. We're working on a grant yesterday, potentially, for longleaf restoration prescribed burning. So, Don't hesitate to call uh, if you're interested in longleaf, whether you're trying to do it for restoration, put it back on the ground, or if you just actually want technical guidance. Well, there's quite a few of us out here working in the field that are willing to come out and and make recommendations, uh, assist in that way. But uh, the NRCS, through the Partners for Fish and Wildlife Program, Wildlife Mississippi, we've done a lot of longleaf restoration in the past 15, 16 years.
3: What would be the best way for somebody to get in touch with you if they needed to about their long
4: life? Uh, you can look, look me up on my government internet, which is randy underscore browning at fws, as at frankwilliamsam.gov. Uh, you can contact Wildlife Mississippi and uh, talk to them. They will also send it down to me. Uh, or, like I say, most of the South Mississippi. NRCS offices are familiar with me. Uh, They know how to get a hold to me and touch with me. Uh, And it depends on the landowner, what he wants, uh, what his uh, financial situation is. We'll try to help out the best we can.
0: But, uh, yeah, I was going to ask about that, and I think it's uh, important there that in addition to some of the monetary, uh, the grants that you're talking about, you also have that kind of that technical expertise to where if someone has some land is interested, they can get the information from you uh, to know how to really help uh, keep this habitat going strong.
4: Yes, sir. And uh, like I say, there's several of us that work in the field that are willing to come out, whether it's myself, uh, the Turkey Wild Turkey Federation biologist, Uh, They have biologists that will assist with longleaf and actually she has a partnership um, with NRCS to help the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries and Parks has some private lands biologists that are willing to help or some even their coordinators uh, like
0: Adam Butler. We use him a lot. Come out and help us. All right. it's going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, funding provided in part by Wildlife Mississippi. That's a statewide organization celebrating its 20th year of conserving Mississippi's land, waters, and wildlife and from contributions from listeners like you. Our show is produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener was Patrick Price. So for Libby Hartfield, Dr. Troy Major, and our guest Randy Browning, I'm Kevin Farrell. Stay tuned up next on MPB. It's Season Pass with Jay White. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts. It's heard only on MPB Think Radio.